Hello everybody, I'm uh, Derek Arden and welcome to Monday Night Live, Live and Uncut podcast. Today I've got with me Carl Walsh, and as you can probably see, or you will see in a minute, he's in Honolulu, Hawaii, showing off his latest shirt uh, that he's bought. Let me tell you just a little bit about Carl. Carl was selected out of 2,000 auditioners to the prodigious, prodigious, can't say it, Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, and spent 20 years on stage as an actor and director. But he then decided to go into business where he rose from part-time help in a record store to a director of information systems. Wow. In 2009, Carl was a finalist in the World Champion of Public Speaking, which helped launch his speaking career. Welcome, Carl. Uh, what time is it in the morning in Hawaii and is it still dark? It is just past six, and yes, it is still dark. Let's see if I can get a little glow out there. Just starting to glow in the sky there. Okay, there well, I know you've got your phone with us, and you're going to give us, a, give us a view later on of the sun coming up in mm -hmm. Hawaii, just to make us all, all very jealous, particularly those of us that are in London at uh, the moment. Carl, you're going to talk about... Uh, you're going to talk to us today about your latest book, which is what you learned from being in the theatre. So thanks for coming on. I'll hand it over to you and away we go. All right. Well, when people think of the theatre or of movies, they think of actors, they think of personalities, big personalities. What they very rarely think about is that there is a business a very large business behind it all. And the years that I spent in theater, I learned pretty much everything I needed to know when I went into business. All the business rules applied. So what I'm going to do today is just give you some of the principles that I learned. And perhaps these are things that you, it would be useful for you to be reminded of some of them you probably already know, but a little reminder every once in a while, and I'll put it in context of theater so that it's not the same thing you've heard before. But first of all, before I get into that, I'll just let you know that I was born a short cross-eyed kid with a profound stutter. So of course I wanted to be an actor. I had all the tools, right? As I was going through school, I got quite a lot of flack over that, over my stutter, because kids can be very cruel. And even in high school, even as late as that, uh, people would come up to me, and this is the word that was used back in those days. They would refer to me as retard, duh, can you even understand what I'm saying? And all because I had a stutter. Uh, we have a president currently here who stutters, and everybody takes that to mean that uh, he's incompetent and going into de dementia. So really, stuttering is probably the one handicap left that it's perfectly okay to ridicule. It is uh, socially acceptable to ridicule somebody with a stutter, uh, and it certainly was back in the day. It was hard to deal with that as a kid, but 
I finally realized what a gift it was. Because everybody took their eye off of you. You weren't somebody they need to worry about because you're an idiot. As I was cons considered wow. for quite some time. But the very same people that called me an idiot and a retard when I was a freshman elected me student body president when I was a senior because they began to learn my value. And I learned the lesson how easy it is to reach the top when nobody thinks you're a threat. Mm. Mm. Being underestimated is a huge gift. And I would think in negotiation, Derek, it is certainly a huge gift if if people underestimate you. you now, my first time... So, uh, sorry? You certainly want to be under the radar when you're helping people negotiate. My issue is when I'm helping my client, uh, all they got to do is look my name up on LinkedIn and it says what I do. I was hoping <laughs> yeah. they could do that, but I think everyone does that. So anyway, sorry yeah. for interrupting, Carl. You carry no, on. No, no, no. No, that's, that, that, that's absolutely true. Now, the first time I was on stage was actually as a ballet dancer, which if you look at me today, kind of hard to, to, to believe, but it's, it's true. My very first paycheck was as a ballet dancer. But my mentors and my trainers were Tashiana Ryobochinska and David Lachine. David Lachine ran the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, the, he and Tashiana were the giants of the ballet world in the 30s and 40s. I didn't know that at the time because we didn't have Google. Uh, I, I just thought they were really good. <laughs> well, David, for some reason, took a real shine to me, and it, it took me some time to figure out why. And one day he sat the company down and he began going through everyone one by one, telling them what's wrong with them. And he came to me and he just smiled. And the one thing he said was that you always are here. You're here before the rehearsals. You're here after the rehearsals and you work in between the rehearsals. And he said something that uh, I got a lot of kidding about, but he said, you're just a sweet pumpkin. So from that day on, I was known as the sweet pumpkin. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's okay if David Lean is calling you. Uh, David Lean, yes, if David Lean. But if uh, uh, David Lachine is calling you that, that's just fine. So what did I learn from David? Here, this very renowned person has a high regard for me. And I wasn't the best answer at all. You know, I'm short and stocky didn't even have, have the lines for it, but he kept putting me in everything that he did. And what I learned was show up, yeah. just show up and do your work and do your prep. And if you've ever known a dancer, they'll tell you, there's a lot of pain involved with being a dancer, a lot of pain, but to me, it was pure joy because even as a child, I had always been into classical music and ballet. 
that was classical music in motion. How could you ask for anything more? And the joy makes the work fun. And the fun makes the pain worth it. Mm. Later on, when I went to UCLA for my theater degree, Michael Gordon, some of you may have heard of, but probably not. He actually was a, a very successful director in Hollywood. He directed the Mel Ferrer uh, Cyrano de Bergerac, for which Mr. Ferrer won the Academy Award for. He also directed the Rock Hudson and Doris Day films, uh, which he used to say, those films should never have been made, but they were well directed. So he, so he always had a, had a good perspective on that. But this was a, a very respected man on the faculty, uh, obviously. So one day at the end of my first year, so I was walking down the hall, he popped out of his office and called me in. He said, Carl, can, can you come in? I want to talk to you. I said, sure. So I went in, sat across from him, uh, him behind his desk. And he looked at me for a little while and he said, you know, you're a good actor. I like what you do, but you aren't exactly matinee idol good looks. <laughs> no one's going to want to pay to see you. And so you probably want to think about perhaps doing something else. Well, I left his office and I was 18 years old and I'd wanted this my whole life. And I walked out of that office. At first I was crushed, but by the time I hit the doors going outside, I decided what I was going to do. And I was going to show him. For the next three years, I was always one of the actors in his acting class, in his directing class. His directors always wanted me. And he saw that I was always there. I always showed up. I always did the work. I always did the prep. And when it came time for me to leave, he and the other uh, faculty were discussing who they were going to give the Natalie Wood Award to. Natalie Wood uh, donated every year a cash scholarship. And there were actors who were you know, far more uh, popular than me. They always got the roles. I always had trouble getting, getting the roles. And Michael Gordon said, you know, there's someone that we're forgetting here. And uh, he's going off to London to train. And that's Carl Walsh. And I think he should get it. And I ended up getting it. They ended up voting for me. So what's the lesson there? What, what did I learn? And boy, was I surprised too. And that is you got to really want what it is you're shooting for. If you don't really want it, don't do it. Move on. And I think Michael actually may have been testing me a, a little bit when, when he said those things to me. You got to really want it if you're going to stick with it. But if you do, the work pays off. Eventually, 
eventually. It's not instant. But down the road, all of a sudden you find it was not for nothing. Now, one of the reasons that I chose that particular year to audition for the Royal Academy in New York was because the previous summer I had done the one month workshop at the Royal Academy. And I had decided, yes, this is, this is where I, I want to train. This is what I want to do. And you know me, if I really want it, I'm gonna go after it. Now, I didn't think I had much of a chance, frankly, but it would be the first time I had been to New York. And I thought, well, what, what, what the heck? Let's, let's go to New York. I'll spend everything I have, I'll risk it all. And at least I'll get a trip to New York out of it. But I also knew that some people at the Academy now knew who I was. They had worked with me. And I thought, if I'm ever going to get in, this is the time. This is it. So I went. And to my utter shock and amazement, I got in. I later found out that Hugh Crutwell, who was the principal at the Academy, did not talk to anyone about the auditions. He made his own mind up. He never dis discussed it with anybody. And that actually, it was a clean, <laughs> it was a clean win. Uh, nobody can convinced him. So, you know, I, I was very proud about that. But you see, risk if it's done out of logic, if it's done backed with information, backed with data, risk has its rewards. And a lot of people know that in, in business, or at least they know that risk has rewards, but do they back it up? And that's where they run afoul. Risk with information has its rewards. One of my favorite directors at the Royal Academy was Jeff Bullen. And can you believe it? He's still there directing. When I was there in 2018, he uh, gave us a tour of the, of the new facilities there. Jeff is, uh, well, he, he was the young lion when I was there. And as I say, he was one of my favorite directors, but he had one quirk that used to drive me nuts. When he was directing you, he would say, now, Carl, I want you to go over to the table there. And um, I'd like to see a bit of, well, some he loved French. He loved to speak French. And of course, I don't speak French. And I had to always stop him and say, Jeff, if you want to give me a direction, you're going to have to do it in English. I'm sorry. Um, uh, it's just get me the message in a language that I understand. And that's a lesson I never for, forgot, which is communication. It's on the sender, not on the receiver. It is the responsibility of the sender to make sure the receiver understands. How many times have you heard, well, he just doesn't un understand or she just doesn't get it. Well, that's not him. That's not her. That's you. And so always keep that in mind. You've always got to make sure that you get that message across. 
My first Shakespearean lead on a London stage was for a particularly difficult play, A Winter's Tale by Shakespeare. And it is known as a very difficult play. In fact, it's one of his, what they call the problem plays. My leading lady was Juliet Stevenson, which those of you in England, I'm, I'm, I, I know, I'm sure you know who she is. She's Dame Juliet Stevenson these days. But our opening night, which I was very excited about, it was my, as I say, my first Shakespearean lead on a London stage, an American doing Shakespearean lead on a London stage. You can imagine what was going through my head. And I can safely report to you that it was a catastrophe. It was just awful. Well, after the performance, I was in the bar at the academy and about three feet away from me was the director. And Jonathan turned to me, he put his beer down and he said, so what do you suppose went wrong? I can tell you that it's a good thing murder is illegal because one would have occurred right there at that instant. I would have bludgeoned him with my beer mug. Wow, wow, wow. And I remembered all the rehearsals that we did on an upper floor rehearsal room at a local pub and him sitting in the back drinking beer after beer after beer. And we would rehearse a scene and turn to him and say, Jonathan, what do you think? What do you think? What do you got for us? And he'd say, oh, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Go on. Let's do the next scene. We never got any feedback from him. We never got any direction. And that's why the show was a catastrophe. But you know what? Some of that is on us as actors. Because we could have done something about that. We were used to just, you know, doing what the director says, put everything in the director's hands and go with that. But what we could have done, should have done, is rehearse a scene, have one of the actors that aren't in the scene stand back and say, you're the director for this scene, give us, give us feedback, direct us. Because we did know something about theater by that time. Mm. Now, it may not have been the greatest production in the world, but it sure would have been better than what we had. And a big lesson there that I never forgot is when there's no leadership, you lead from the bottom. Someone's got to take control, even if it's a group effort. There's got to be leadership somewhere. And it's not unusual that sometimes it's got to come from the bottom up. While I was in London, I also worked at the National Theater. I was there during the Royal Opening, met the Queen, Princess Margaret, all that. But the main production that was going on was Hamlet, fittingly. Albert Finney played Hamlet, Angela Lansbury played Gertrude, his mother. Now the critics had not been very kind to Angela Lansbury 
And the remarkable thing that I saw happen is she suddenly became radioactive to the cast. Nobody talked to her. They would turn her back, turn their backs on her. Now, this was in 1976. Angela Lansbury had already had a very distinguished career. And I was shocked to see people doing that to her. Well, she at one point finally had to leave the, the production. She had a commitment on Broadway that she had to keep. And on her final night, she ordered in cases of the finest champagne she could lay her hands on and a catered spread that you would not believe for all the cast, crew, and even the people who worked the front of house. Lesson. Always, always show class at all times and particularly during the tough times. No one will forget that ever. And I'll bet there's quite a few people who felt a little ashamed at how they had behaved. By the way, that Broadway commitment that she had, it was for Sweeney Todd, which was one of the most iconic performances ever on Broadway. It's a legend now. And anyone who ever saw that show will take the memory to their graves, uh, hopefully not done in by the barber of Fleet Street. <laughs> when I came back to Los Angeles, uh, I and a few actors started our own theater company, and I directed and produced the very first production. It was a, it was by Christopher Hampton, a, a, a very famous playwright. It was called The Philanthropist, and unknown to me until Samuel French notified me that this was going to be the West Coast premiere of, of this play. Because of that, all the newspapers came to the opening weekend the LA Times, all the Hollywood pap uh, papers, uh, uh, Variety, the, the Hollywood Reporter, and it was a hit. It was a huge hit. Well, the following week, the phones began ringing off the hook, people wanting tickets. And they would ask us, well, okay, sure, fine. I, I need two tickets. How, how much are they? Well, uh, uh, it's $5 a seat. And they, uh, they go, what, what? $5. Yeah. Why? What's wrong? What, what, what happened? Did you lose the cast? What, why $5? We said, well, actually the production wasn't expensive to put on and we wanted to pass that on to our audience. And we had to convince them that $5 was okay. Buy a ticket. Lesson learned. And this one came out of left field. I never imagined this. But the lesson is never undervalue yourself or your product. It never occurred to me we'd get complaints about the ticket price being too cheap. We immediately raised the prices for our next production and never again did we get a complaint about the price of our tickets. 
Working at the 21st Street Theater, it was sort of an actor's co-op, really. I may have been the artistic director, but we we all worked to, together on it, building the sets, choosing the plays. What I learned is collaboration works and getting the right people to collaborate with. Now that, that really works. And I also found that working with people that are better than you makes you better. And finally, because an old veteran of the stage told me, don't worry about the bad reviews. You know, the good reviews end up on the bottom of the birdcage right along with them. But the big lesson from that was you learn more from your failures than from your successes. Successes are the result of your failures and the failures are how you get there. So these are just a few points that I wanted to bring to your, your attention. There will be many more in the book and it won't just be about theater. It's also what I learned as a child in, in a Catholic military school, double whammy there. And um, what I learned when I finally got into business but uh, these little incidents in my life had a huge impact on me. And I hope being reminded of them today uh, will make you just a little more mindful of them. Back to you, Derek. Carl, that was absolutely fantastic. And uh, as usual, because I'm a consummate note taker, I've got uh, six pages of notes. But I want to summarize just one or two of those tips because they were really powerful and i think everybody watching this listening to this on the podcast can always be reminded of that and it is the uh, powerful tips that we tend to forget when we're under pressure number one was always turn a negative into a positive the way you handled your disabilities um, number two was you were going to show him he had a pop at you and therefore you were going to show him and uh, you um you always were there. You were there early. You were there uh, during it, paying attention flat out. And you were there at the end. You stayed there to practice. Risk has its rewards. If it's uh, calculated carefully, information is power. Communication is on the sender, not the receiver. While I was listening to you saying that, I was thinking of the difficulties with Facebook, with WhatsApp, with emails, where the communication is just one way. And the person that sends it makes the assumption, and we all know that the word assumption has the three letters ass in front. Assumptions make an ass out of you and me. Um, I'm going to ask you another time about how you handle that feedback from the director straight after the um, the, the, the show, uh, but when there is no leadership, someone has to lead from the bottom. That That's so true, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and uh, with Angela Lansbury, who's been a huge star over here in some productions as well, recently as, uh, as people were radioactive. I love that, but people were radioactive uh, 
towards her. That's unbelievable. And uh, she always showed class. That's difficult, that one, isn't it? I was just thinking back at that point. Did I always show class when someone had... <laughs> Off. I'm not sure I did, but um... well, I know I I haven't always showed it, and 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 that's something I need to always remind myself of. I think that's a great question for the uh, audience, uh, and uh, never undervalue yourself or your product. And when people walk about with that imposter syndrome flying around, uh, um, you know, we need to learn from it and uh, get rid of it. And finally, you learn more from your failures than your successes. And I was thinking about a couple of failures that I had at that point when um, it kick-started me into taking action. Carl, that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll stay on the show and answer some questions. Carl, how do people get hold of you uh, in Hawaii to uh, get your book? Well, uh, the book will be out after the first of the year. Uh, I'm I'm still in the process of writing it. And that's one of the reasons why I do this presentation. This presentation is helping me write the book, uh, which is great. So uh, very, very helpful there. Uh, but if they want to contact me, they can contact me at two, uh, two different email addresses that I'll give you. One is the alpha dogs. Dot, oh, no, uh, the alpha dogs at gmail.com and then Carl that's with a C Carl at Carl Walsh speaks.com fantastic Carl and uh, we have got um, yeah we've got some questions coming up afterwards but can I thank, ask everybody on to uh, show Carl the normal Monday Night Live vote of thanks for coming on and showing. <laughs> there we go. From, um, so we all know who uh, that came from in yeah. San Francisco. Carl Walsh, thanks. Uh, uh, by the way, I need to to, to correct that uh, that email that I gave. It's a new email, so so I haven't learned it yet. Uh, it's the alpha dogs group at gmail.com. Okay. Well, I'm sure people will track you down one way or the other on, uh, yeah. on Google, on LinkedIn, etc. Carl Walsh, thanks for joining us. I hope you'll join us again shortly. Uh, of course I will. <laughs> Always. <laughs>